Critics are calling Angela Shonalek's I Was at Home But exquisitely cryptic and gorgeously immersive. A Cinema Guild release, I Was at Home But opens Friday, February 14th at Film at Lincoln Center with Shonalek in person for Q&As on Friday and Saturday. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. The achievements of actors and actresses of color have long gone underrecognized in Hollywood. It's a fact of the industry that has only gotten more glaring as the years go by. For the latest Film at Lincoln Center talk, hosted by Film Comment magazine, we gathered together to celebrate the craft of our favorite performers of color from current cinema. We also talked about key figures and overlooked talents from across film history. Our critical appreciation of specific actors naturally gave rise to a range of topics, including issues of authenticity and gatekeeping. For our discussion, I was joined by Soraya Nadia McDonald, writer for The Undefeated and contributing editor at Film Comment, Mayuk Sen, James Beard Award-winning food and culture writer, and Devika Girish, assistant editor at Film Comment. Let's go to the conversation. You know, obviously, um, Film Common is not always like a, a publication that is necessarily driven by, you know, usual awards coverage, but it's impossible to ignore the significance um, of, of that high a, a profile and platform uh, in terms of uh, what it says about the industry and what it does in terms of representation. I don't know if anyone wants to dive in with some thoughts. Yeah, this year just felt like really frustrating in the acting categories. Mm. Um Particularly, like, there were, so I think, like, just individually, the fact that, like, Parasite, like, the cast of Parasite gets snubbed, and this is a thing that we see sort of repeatedly with Asian actors, um, is that, like, you can have this film that's, like, critically lauded and does really well, um, and obviously, like, the performances are a part of that, but then that doesn't get recognized. Um, I mean, certainly, like, you know, the other thing that was frustrating to see um, was basically Lupita Nyong'o getting just snubbed for us. Um, it's like, oh, she's, she's playing two people. Um, I, I don't know that Scarlett needed both of those, uh, <laughs> both of those nominations, but yeah. okay. Um, you know, and then the other person I would say is Alfre Woodard, um, and Clemency, who I think probably delivered like one, like maybe the best performance of her career. Um, it's not an easy film. It's not a super like feel good film. Um, she's not necessarily like a um, an easy character in that film, um, and yet she plays her so well. But I think that's the that's exactly the sort of thing that kind of that Academy voters don't necessarily appreciate, right? right. Like they, but then, I mean, who knows? Cause like, they, I think there's sort of this prevailing school of thought that they like, they like actors who are going to suffer for their art, like visibly and be, um, you know, and I think like once you start sort of projecting that onto, especially onto like people of color and you see Halle Berry winning for, you know, make me feel good. Um, <laughs> like there's there's not a whole lot of recognition of um, 
of really sort of like layered and nuanced performances um, the way that there often is, I think, that we take for granted um, for white performers. Yeah, I think especially with Lupita Nyong'o, who, for me, that is probably one of the best performances by by a woman this year. And I don't put too much stock in the Oscars. I, you know, I find it pointless to even get in the debates about why was this person not awarded? Why was this film not awarded? I I always tell people this, when you're not from the US, you learn right. to dismiss the Oscars very quickly and learn that they are <laughs> a local award show, as Bong Joon-ho said in an oh, interview. Right. Yeah, he had um, At the same words. time, when someone like, someone with such an obviously skilled performance, like Lupita Nyong'o, which not only is an amazing, you know, act of uh, craft, of performance craft, but it's also the kind of performance that you think the Academy would pay attention to. It kind of checks those boxes. The kind of very external, you know, kind of weird, you said, you know, suffering for your art. It's equivalent to, like, what the Joker would represent as a character, right? You, like, become this other person, this tortured person, and you put on makeup and a different facade and to still get overlooked. So that actually did enrage me a little bit. And she did win an Oscar for 12 Years a Slave. So, you know, and and it did make... A beautiful performance. No, it was incredible, such a, and it was her screen debut. um, Totally magnificent. But to your point, it does seem that people of color get recognized when they are dis- depicting their own trauma on screen or their historical exactly. suffering on screen, yeah. as opposed to when they are, you know, displaying skill, right. you know, which like might when be... when you're just interesting. Yeah, and when you're just, when you're doing strange things with your body and with your emotions and with your face that people can't immediately map onto some kind of anthropological or social experience, exactly. you know, or, or mm-hmm. trend. Yeah, because her movement work in... Oh, I mean, like... it's and the remarkable thing about that performance is it's so externalized. It's in the body so much, but it's also so internalized because yes, it's also about imposter syndrome. And when you see that twist at the end, it makes mm-hmm. you rethink the whole film. Exactly. Because the whole film, she's actually yeah. someone else and she's able to imbibe that duality. And mm-hmm. when you and you it's not like, you know, at least for me, I didn't know what was coming at the end. But once that ending is revealed and you rethink the whole film, you can find clues in her performance. Yes. So it's so internal at the same time being so expressive in the ways that I think people know how to recognize good acting. It's obvious and at the same time it's extremely subtle. And what's weird... I'm sorry, I'm going to shut up because I don't want to monopolize the whole conversation. (laughs) But I just want to point this out about Lupita. Um, and as I was looking like for historical sort of corollaries um, have been sort of similarly snubbed or overlooked, um, she has impeccable training. Um, and if you've ever seen her like on stage, that comes across like immediately. Um, she did this wonderful play a few years ago. Maybe I shouldn't say it was wonderful because it was about like rape and during like the Liberian Civil War. Um but like having the privilege of seeing her on stage um, where she's playing basically a 14 year old girl, um, 
like I found myself just marveling at the work that she was doing um, because often, you know, you see adults playing teenagers and it's just, it, it just doesn't ring true. Um, and there were all of these like subtleties, not necessarily even externally, but like everything from her posture, like the way that she was thinking about herself as this character, just like she was, I, she made me believe she was 14. Um, like I, even more so after seeing her in 12 Years a Slave, like I'm like, okay, yeah, we, we know you're a great actor. Um, that performance, I think, was the one where I was just like, oh, she's, she is scary good. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I, when I think of other actors, especially like Yale-trained actors who have been overlooked in the same way, there's like Brian Tyree Henry, who people have made the mistake of thinking that he's basically his Atlanta character, Paperboy, and then they're surprised to find out that he's not. Um, Angela Bassett, you know, being overlooked in uh, What's Love Got to Do With It. Um, yeah, even, you know, it seems like when you have the sort of formal credentials, like that training, pedigree it and... still doesn't, it's still, it's not enough to break through necessarily. Yeah, um, Lupita's snub totally like floored me, honestly. Uh, I, I feel so naive in retrospect for thinking that she would get right. in in spite of, you know, the Globe snub or whatever. Um, but, you know, piggybacking, piggybacking off of what you said about Alfrey, you know, she has been one of my favorite actresses for a long time. And what is so frustrating to me is the fact that she disappeared from kind of the awards conversation so quickly and easily you know in spite of like you can say that neon handled uh parasites whole campaign pretty well aside from the actors but with alfrey it was like kind of non-existent and you know award season is all about narratives right and the narrative writes itself with alfrey you know she's gotten one nomination for cross creek in like 1983 and 1984 she has so much amazing work she was snubbed for passion fish in 1992 like she's really really incredible and she's been underrewarded by the Academy, you know? She's like kind of catnip for an Oscar nomination at the very least, if not a win. You know, right. we're seeing Renee Zellweger kind of, you know, ride a, I, I believe it was a deserved comeback narrative, you know, but like, why doesn't that kind of comeback narrative extend to a black actress, a black veteran like Alfrey? It's really frustrating to see. Yeah. I mean, especially uh, uh, Sarai, you mentioned that performance is so interesting as well in, in, in Clemency because um, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a quiet performance as well. Um, and, um, just the, the, uh, you know, also the idea of the, the trauma that's, that's being expressed or portrayed in that character. Um, it's, it's, it's just sort of, sort of seeps out, you know, it's, it's a really remarkable thing to, to act so in, internally, but also you're feeling the force even more of it. And, um, but so I guess, yeah, it's because it's not as perhaps as, as showy as, as other, you know, other performances that get nominated. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, sort of related to what we've been talking about is the question of authenticity that encircles mm -hmm. people of color in right. all the field, arts fields, not just acting, but artistic output by people of color in general, I think gets sort of entrapped within standards of like, authenticity so I think in some ways realism and naturalism also get a bit redefined 
when it's people of color especially telling stories about their communities. And I interviewed Stephen Yun a couple years ago when mm -hmm. he was in Burning, uh, which we all love. Yeah. Uh, and it, it showed at the New York Film Festival. And something he said was it was so liberating for him to play a Korean character in a Korean film set in Korea with other Korean characters so that he didn't have to be the Asian character in a film, which is what happens in Hollywood whenever he does these roles. He was in The Walking Dead. Um, he's been in, well, Sorry to Bother You hadn't put him in a more interesting role. But often, you know, you get singled out and you're performing your Asian-ness. And he said it was really liberating because because he was in an Asian film, he could just be himself and he could play a cipher. You know, his character yeah. is really a cipher. It's, it's this completely unreadable character who is actually making use of the fact that Steven Yan is a Korean American, unlike the other actors who are Korean, because he's supposed to be this smooth and coolly cosmopolitan character who's sort of placeless. And you can't place where he's from, who he is, he has these kind of Western affectations. And he's making use of all of that. And he's still a cipher, which, you know, I think in American movies, that that kind of cipher-esque quality, either if, if usually if it's an actor of color, it's either like something kind of exoticist, you know, they become this like exotic, mysterious creature. Or, again, they are what they represent. They are their right. story. Um, and so it was really interesting to hear him talk about that. And then... With Sorry to Bother You, in which he played a union organizer, mm -hmm. he said it was also interesting that he was in this movie that was predominantly about black workers and black labor, and that he sort of understood that his role was to sort of recede a little bit, you know? And, and he understood that what his place was in the kind of dynamics of that film, but he also thought that it was significant that as an Asian person, he was cast as this everyman. Like, he was the everyman right. in this film yeah. full of really ridiculous, over-the-top characters. Uh -huh. And he was kind of the straight man, yeah. the everyman. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, which, which again is like, usually that role is a white person, you right. know. And so he, how much he enjoyed receding a little bit and being able to still be part of this kind of cross-racial solidarity story of that particular film but at the same time being this low-key character. So, um, you know, it, it's it's just, it's fascinating to think about the ways in which also, because of a certain kind of scarcity, because you never see more than one, you know, you never see two black characters or two Asian characters in a movie, unless it's like about oh, them, right? right? Um, there's always like that one friend, one Asian friend, one right. black friend, that sort of thing what kind of parameters that also creates for those actors' performances and their reception. It was also interesting on the topic of Asian actors to see The Farewell just get completely snubbed across the board. Yeah. I love that movie a lot, um, but I do have to say I was kind of skeptical of Aquafina's ability to kind of crack the uh, best actress list because I think it was a very recessive performance. I thought that she was very charming and very moving. Um, and I really, you know, what I really did think, again, just kind of like talking about narratives and award season narratives is that the whole like Golden Globe win, you know, being like, oh, she is, I believe, the first Asian American winner of the Golden Globe for Best Actress for a musical comedy. I thought that would kind of like linger in Oscar voters' minds and be like, oh, yeah, you know, this would be a really important, like, symbolic, you know, nomination because there hasn't been an Asian actress nominated in Best Actress since 1936, which it was a... Uh, 
Merle Oberon. It's crazy, you yeah, know? Crazy. Um, and I mean, so many of the performances in The Farewell were so beautiful. I also really was holding out hope for a Zhao Sujen, who I yeah. thought was... Nominate Nine-Nine! Yeah, like, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, like, for some reason, Yalitza Aparicio's, like, extremely well-deserved nomination last year made me very hopeful that, you know, they would recognize, you know, performances that are kind of um, not your typical Oscar performances, and yet that was snubbed, too, you know? And it just, really you know. is cyclical. But, I mean, mm. like, I guess, like, this is the year of the disaffected white man. <laughs> like, that is, that's... That is the narrative this year. But uh, I wanted to come back to something you said about authenticity, because um, you reminded me something I read. So this is like, I feel like I come back to this book so much when I'm writing. It's um, African-American Actresses, uh, The Struggle for Visibility, 1900 to 1960 by Charlene Register, which I highly recommend. Um, but one of the actresses that she writes about um, in here is Louise Bevers. Um, who, you know, was often stuck sort of playing these like stereotypical roles in early Hollywood. Um, and, you know, the thing that strikes me about Louise is that she'd never lived in the South. Um, and quote, she had to learn the Negro dialect just as one learns a foreign language. I couldn't even understand the language, but I kept studying, reading books and poems, and finally mastered the dialect to sufficiently use it in screen roles. Um, and she'd also had limited experience as a servant. Um, and yet, you know, yeah, we're, we're sort of projecting this, oh, okay, well, she must be from Alabama and, you know, was cleaning white ladies' toilets and maybe got some sort of break in Hollywood and, and now she's just doing that but on screen. But no. <laughs> Um, that's actually, and uh, we've been talking. That's great that you, you brought her up. Um, imitation of life. Yes. Yeah. And because um, another thing I wanted to do was talk about just sort of um, actors that aren't talked enough about historically, um, and that's that's a great um, great movie example for that. Um, and um, Ayuk, actually, you just mentioned Merle Oberon. I wonder if you. Yeah. yeah, so Merle Oberon, for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, she was born in British India in the early 1900s. Um, and she went on to have a pretty lucrative Hollywood career. Um, and she was Kathy in Wuthering Heights opposite uh, Laurence Olivier in 1939. Um, and she got one nomination in her career for The Dark Angel, which is a movie that's like kind of impossible to find unless you watch TCM and, you know, have a video recorder or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think that today it seems like critical consensus seems to say that she was a very dull actress or just not very interesting but what is more interesting about her, which is, first of all, something, an assessment that I disagree with completely, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, what is very compelling to a lot of people is her backstory. So she basically, throughout her life, she, I think, died in her 60s. She went to great pains to kind of uh, conceal her parentage. So her father, as far as we know, is white. Her mother was mixed uh, South Asian, a little bit Maori. Um, but basically, Merle Oberon, she passed herself off as white throughout her whole career and very steadfastly kind of just denied any sort of South Asian parentage. Um, there's some infamous story about her trying to pass off her mother as her maid because she was so dark-skinned and she was so ashamed of her mother being visibly South Asian. Um, and there's another story also of her trying to basically concoct this narrative that she was actually from Tasmania and she had this whole visit planned to Tasmania and then kind of uh, backed out of it at the last second when people asked her about her birth records. 
Um, so, you know, she really just concealed her heritage. And I think that I can't help but watch her today and watch her in Wuthering Heights and all these other movies that she was in. And that kind of floods just whatever I'm seeing on the screen. You know, there's something kind of anxious uh, and like really compelling as a result about her screen presence, you know? And I think that she is one of those actors who's probably a due for a sustained critical, like a reconsideration that doesn't kind of see her acting like in, you know, as kind of like, you know, siloed from this backstory. I kind of want to see a critical reevaluation of her like that brings these two things in concert, you know? I'd love to write it, but... We can work on that, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting uh, you mentioned her, and I was thinking earlier today about Sabu. Yes. And so one way of kind of becoming part of the industry here was to maybe for her was to like complete, completely conceal her parentage mm. and try to pass as white. And for Sabu, it was to just play into the stereotype right just be Mowgli be like the elephant boy just kind of embrace the character of um the South Asian person in the west and I was actually looking up his biography today and what I found really interesting was that he eventually became a U.S. citizen uh and then he was cast in an Indian movie but he couldn't get a work permit to make that movie in India and so he never made any Indian movies. He only made British, he only worked for British and American directors. Um, but you know, it, that that is the thing, like you can see that even today, that being sort of the two poles that of, of how um, actors of color like either have to really embrace what's kind of expected of them or they have to really go in the other direction. And you hear, I mean, this is actually something I'm interested in in discussing the idea of colorblind um, casting and acting that's, you know, kind of talked about more and more. And it's kind of, it's a very difficult bind for me to think through because on the one hand, you know, I think roles should not be defined by someone's race. I'm sure it's really exhausting. Just like as a writer, it's exhausting to be asked to constantly write about where you come from and your background. As an actor, it's probably really exhausting to constantly have to play characters who are, you know, representatives of your culture and race. At the same time, I don't think it's possible to elide your race when you're playing any character, right? Like, it, there's something rings false also in those films in which the film just ignores the fact that this person comes from a, is a person of color in this particular setting. So uh, the history of David Copperfield yeah, so it, it I saw it at TIFF. I don't think it's out yet. It's not out yet. Yeah, and it, it's kind of like a, an adaptation of the book, but with completely colorblind casting. And um, the lead is played by Dave Patel, and there's various other actors. And it was a really refreshing and fun way to encounter that story. At the same time, at that time in Britain, if you have an Indian, if you have Indian and black people in that context. I think it's kind of, it just feels artificial not to address who, what it meant to be a brown or a black person in colonial industrial Britain. So, I, you know, and this is, that's something I, I, it's kind of an impasse for me to kind of think through like what's, um, what should be expected in terms of creating inclusive roles and, and casting processes. It's, it's, it's weird. It's weird. I mean, did anybody else see like the news about Barnes and Noble basically like issuing 
new editions of like classic works, but sort of retconning the covers with brown people. <laughs> and, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but and, and it's like, did, I don't, I don't know that you quite thought this through. <laughs> uh, but I think part of the discomfort with that, um, like, and you know, this goes to what you're saying, Devika, is that like for so long, um, it's been possible for white people to exist on screen without necessarily being white. Like they're just not anything. They're not raced. Mm. But when people of color are on screen, we're always raced. Like even to the point that like when you have something like David Copperfield, where you're not, you're like, it, it's sort of head scratching. But like we we don't have this situation where like we have to think about the white character's whiteness in almost anything. <laughs> like that is the exception to the rule. Yeah, no, I'm really interested to see uh, David Copperfield. I didn't go to TIFF, I didn't see it. Um, because I think Dev Patel, you know, he is an actor who has had to play a lot of these like weird subservient roles, like a best exotic Marigold Hotel. Like, are you kidding me? Like, this is so embarrassing, you know? I mean, even Slumdog Millionaire, what is so hilarious about that movie and his role, which he won so much acclaim for it, is he is a British man, you know, playing a resident of a slum in Mumbai and he's talking in his British accent, you know, in English. It's all so weird and fake and that's the, you know, role that people just kind of shower with the, showered him and the movie with acclaim. So it is, it is like kind of satisfying to them see him play David Copperfield, I will say. He was probably like, this is karma. Like, you know, I, I earned this because I did that. Um, but... Yeah, it, but sorry, I interrupted you. But he's played all these like weird, very racialized roles that I don't think were the best displays of his charm and his range. Yeah, yeah, you know, he's very charming. Although I will say that um, he wasn't nominated for Slumdog Millionaire, which is very interesting. It took a lion for him to finally be nominated for an Oscar. Um, but speaking of South Asian actors who were not nominated, sorry to no, have no. a second answer to your initial question. No, um Victor Banerjee um, in A Passage to India by David Lean in 1984. So Victor Banerjee uh, is kind of a veteran of Bengali cinema. He worked a lot with Satyajit Ray. And Satyajit Ray was actually um, the person who recommended him for this role. And I know that David Lean had a lot of trouble kind of get, like trying to um, get an actual Indian actor as opposed to a British Indian actor for this role. But there's some sort of like law back then or I don't know, some labor stuff. Anyway, he did get Victor Banerjee. And... For anyone who's seen that movie, he really nails that role. I mean, it is just such a compelling mix of kind of like this fury and pride and earnestness and shame. And he navigates all of these shifts in his character so beautifully. And that year, like 1984, 1985, like A Passage to India cleaned up like at, you know, the Oscars, like in terms of nominations. It got like 11 nominations, Best Picture, Best Director. Judy Davis got in Best Actress kind of as a surprise. And I love her. She's wonderful in that movie. But Victor Banerjee was snubbed. And who was he snubbed for? He was snubbed for like a Sam Waterston in The Killing Fields. And I love Sam. I'm glad that he is an Academy Award nominee. But I don't think that he's spectacular in that movie. I also think it's weird that Hang S. Noor uh, was not um, nominated in lead, even though I think he is the lead. But that's another conversation. Um, and then Jeff Bridges for Starman. And that was just kind of like a left field nomination. And, you know, like Victor Banerjee, he got 
bunch of critics awards that year he got a BAFTA nomination he was very much in the conversation so his snub felt kind of like a an intentional thing almost you know and it just really makes no sense when you watch the movie today to me at least it's also I mean um I think what's interesting to consider like when we're going back to these when especially when we're looking back um is and I wish I had done more of this, is actually kind of looking more at the gossip columns during that time. Because the thing that, you know, I think especially with this year that you start to realize is like the clicks that are that exist, like you you begin to see, like who's rooting for who, who sort of like sees who um, and why. Um, and every once in a while, you know, you'll get someone who will, especially, this is, even though like, the Hollywood foreign press can be like incredibly frustrating. Um, the one thing I appreciate about the Golden Globes is that you you do in vino veritas, right? Like, <laughs> like there every once in a while a little a little little something will come out, right? Like this year it was basically like Renee and her like drunken Texas drawl, <laughs> you know, like dragging Hollywood for being like for ignoring her, and then. Oh, oh, you realized I exist again, right? <laughs> like, um, but, like, one of the things I was thinking about this week is how that's affected Gugu and Botha Roth, um, who, like, was terrific in Belle, um, but, like, most recently, like, after watching the morning show in its entirety, it feels really strange that so much of the attention has been focused on Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon and almost none of it, like, at all has has gone to Gugu, who really has, like, the difficult work to do in that series um, and who pulls it off beautifully. It's not a melodramatic performance. Um, it's, like, it's very sort of interior. Um, and she's, like, she's an incredible performer, whether you've seen her in that um, or in the like superhero movie that she did with, oh God, Lorraine. Do you know who I'm thinking of? Fast Colors. Fast Colors. Yes. yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> with her and Fast Colors. Although also, now that I'm thinking about it, like her co-star in that is also like criminally mm. overlooked. Like it's again like with object work, like what she does, like with a single like cigarette draw is just beautiful and like there's just there's so little appreciation um for those sorts of like quiet graces yeah when they're yeah and just think talking about that's interesting that seems to be this kind of vicious cycle in terms of visibility and invisibility that seems to happen um so i i sort of then start thinking about movies that aren't aren't even don't even have the benefit of being in this general conversation you know um even even historically in, in any sort of uh, awards recognition or other kind of official recognition um and um I, uh, Soraya when we were emailing a bit before um one actor that you mentioned was Henry G Sanders yes um who I who was in he was in Killer, Killer of Sheep, Sheep right yeah. so that you know that's that's a movie that itself had like its period of total visibility <laughs> right. despite being just like a 20th century stone cold classic yeah. and hugely influential. Yeah. It's, you know, um, 
and so that's a different kind of, of, of invisibility as well. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to correct myself. I was oh. talking about Lorraine Toussaint um, as Gugu's oh. co-star in Fast Color. I was like, I just said Lorraine. I was like, I know I know her last name because she's <laughs> wonderful in so many things. Mm -hmm. Like just almost, it feels effortless. Like she just makes it look so easy. Um, but yeah, when we're talking about Henry, he's one of those actors that doesn't really fit into sort of easy like predetermined slots for what black men should be on screen yeah. but also like most of his career i think after that was like largely in television and not film although like i'm really happy to see to see him in queen sugar um like he's in one of the supporting roles there okay. um because if there's anybody who like knows her la rebellion film history it's ava duvernay right. <laughs> <laughs> um and actually see him like be like used and appreciated. Um, but like there, I feel like there are just so many actors who you can list where it's such a shame. Like they're clearly talented. They're clearly, you know, capable of doing amazing things who just don't get the chance. In fact, I think right. I was writing in my note, I was like, oh yeah, it's the Viola Davis quote from the Emmys, right? Like you can't win awards for roles that don't exist. And that's like, that's the story for like so many of these actors. I mean, and sometimes it's just, yeah, I mean, I, it really comes down to, I think, like you have this sort of structure of like what's expected of actors of color. Um, and then on top of that, you have sort of like the general like social strata of Hollywood that you can sort of piece together from reading like the gossip items and like who's right. friends with who and who's hanging out with who. Um, and for folks who don't like fit into those kind of preordained cliques, Mm -hmm. um, like Bokeem Woodbine, I think is another oh, example yeah. of that, who's yeah. just been around doing like terrific work for years and years and who was like, like, he's just a gem in Queen and Slim. Yeah. Like he's, <laughs> I mean, weird ass Louisiana, like <laughs> kind of probably involved in some questionable stuff, <laughs> you know, um, and everything from like wardrobe, mm -hmm. the voice, like all of it, like he is, he is that weird Louisiana uncle. <laughs> like you, you almost never see Louisiana itself is just like, is just such a repository of weirdness. Like I, I love it for that. Um, and it feels like so often, like we never just sort of get past like you know surface level, like Bobby Boucher. This idea of of Louisiana bumpkins. Um, and I'm like, oh, but there's so much in between, yeah. right? And like, Bokeem is pulling at like so much of that. Yeah. No, but he was also okay. like, I'm thinking of Fargo when he was um, like the the television adaptation of Fargo. Um, and I'm forgetting which season that it was where he basically plays this character named Mike Milligan who like runs around with these two like white Irish guys and they're Mike Milligan and the Kitchen Brothers. <laughs> and he's also just like, amazingly um, terrifying in that, almost like sociopathic mm -hmm. in the way that he's sort of like, in the way that he takes pleasure in violence. Um, like there's this scene, I think probably the scene that stuck with me the most is he's reciting Jabberwocky. And it's like menacing and unexpected. And you're just like, what is going on? <laughs> um, and he pulls it off. Yeah. But again, yeah. I think that year he did not win the Emmy for that because it was it would have been what limited series. 
Mm-hmm. And I'd have to go back and see who did. But I was like, oh, come on. Yeah. I mean, that brings up another interesting topic of, um, you know, the, the various kind of tensions and conflicts in performing violence um, and also in like heroes versus villains. You know, how do you embody a hero villain? Um, and so I, I was actually just reading your, your piece about bad boys for life. Um, and well, um, just the question which you raise in, in, in the article um, about well, you know that it's it's the the idea of uh, a cop as like a swaggering kind of central figure is a bit more fraught now than say I don't know early '90s high yeah. Michael Bay era. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah um, um, so one of like the most recent essays I did. Um, was basically kind of just a long look at Will Smith in particular um, and how he became, like, the biggest movie star in the 1990s, like, the biggest movie star in the world at one point. Um, And, like, when you go back and you look at his repertoire um, in all of these blockbusters that he did, and he, like, deliberately pursued, like, he's been very open about that, um, you realize, oh, like, there's, like, one after another role where he's basically playing, like, a cop. Like, he's playing mm. some sort of authority figure. Like, even in, if it's an unexpected way, like, it's not the first thing you see because he's not necessarily showing up with a badge. But in Men in Black, he's playing, you know, a space fed. Um, <laughs> in Wild Wild West, he's playing, you know, basically whatever the precursor to the Secret Service was. Um, in iRobot, he's playing, like, a futuristic, like, turns out to be a cyborg cop. Um, and, you know, like, the biggest franchise, I think, or, yeah, the, I would say the biggest franchise, mm-hmm. like, in his um, in his history, right, is Bad Boys, where he's mm-hmm. playing this, like, very sort of type A, womanizing, you know, shoot first, ask questions later cop. Um, my question was, was whether this would still play as well, like in this sort of post Black Lives Matter era. Um, apparently it does. Cause like, it's the like highest grossing film of the franchise and they're making another one. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good for you, Will Smith, I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, beyond that, there is. Like, there's a history when it comes to, like, sort of ingratiating yourself to white audiences if you're a black actor. And one mm-hmm. of kind of the most effective ways of doing that is by playing um, a cop. And sometimes, like, a lot of times those roles take into account, oh, like, what does it mean to be a black cop in particular, right? Like, you see that with Sidney Poitier um, in the heat of the night. Um, you've... You know, you see that, I think, more explicitly in this most recent version of Bad Boys, where the sort of lines between um, Marcus and um, and Mike. Uh, Marcus is the guy that's played by um, Aaron Lawrence. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. It's been a long week. Um, yeah, but Marcus sort of, they kind of draw out... Um, not only like Marcus's just exasperation with violence, but also, you know, there's a scene where he's literally like praying in a church 
Um, and he's like, I like, I swear, like all the guys that we that we killed, they were bad guys. I promise. Like, you know, <laughs> it wasn't an unarmed black kid. Like he doesn't say that explicitly, but that's you know that's sort mm. of the implication in that scene. Um, but yeah, whether you have like Eddie Murphy or Danny Glover, mm. um, like over and over, like this is Alyssa Rosenberg calls it the citizenship machine. Um, mm. And so it's a way to kind of like put yourself in a in a role that is like traditionally respected and um, and praised in American society, um, particularly like when you look at the history of the film industry and how much anxiety there is over like black men's sexuality, um, and not just black men, but like black sexuality on screen. Period. To the point that like studios were basically censoring themselves because if you had too much or any black romance on screen, like those movies just wouldn't play in the South. Like the exhibitors just, they just wouldn't run the movies. Um, and, and the ratings board also is pretty exactly. skewed in terms of how it rates. Yeah. And so like later on, um, one of the, yeah, like when you have sort of these, these hurdles, like this, going through the citizenship machine of of playing a police officer and to some, you know, to a certain extent, um, also playing an American soldier mm. um, is a way to to basically, I don't want to say get around that, but it it's, um, I'm, I'm the friendly black man, right? I'm the safe black man. Like, you can, you can trust me. Mm. <laughs> um, and even, like, it's funny because I'm like, Bad Boys is a very sort of, like, typical, like, Bang, 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 lots of explosions <laughs> um, franchise. But there's all these weird little undercurrents in it, um, particularly like with the first one where you have Marcus and Mike like basically impersonating each other through most of the movie. And there is this like very obvious sexual tension with Taya Leone's character that, that never sort of actually gets like truly consummated. <laughs> It's suggested, but it's not like, okay, you know, he's co he's cool enough that like this white girl would would be into him, but we're we're not actually going to show you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> it's a valuable one, I think. The Cinema Guild presents "I Was at Home, But" opening Friday, February fourteenth, at Film at Lincoln Center, with director Angela Shonalek in person for Q and A's at select screenings. Winner of the Silver Bear for Best Director, I Was at Home But is an exquisitely cryptic domestic drama that grapples with fundamental questions of existence. Writing an art forum, Nick Pinkerton called the work at once rigorous and absolutely free, and said of Shaunalek, she's in a class by herself. Don't miss your chance to encounter one of the new masters of international cinema. Um, your discussion of the black cop character as this neutralizing role that many actors were playing... It's making me think of Watchmen, which I know you love. I haven't watched as much of it, but I did, it did strike me as very interesting in that yes. it was kind of reconfiguring some of those tropes and what it could mean to play that character. Um, and Regina King obviously plays a cop, yeah. a vigilante uh, cop. But it's also, I mean, more largely, I feel like television has been way more complex in the roles that actors of color have been playing like one tv show it's kind of my comfort tv show is this is us 
And I just love Sterling K. Brown, who was also in Black Panther, who's also been in movies and is now in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel as well. Him and his whole family and that arc is... I mean, they, they're able to explore so many intricate themes about race that I don't see in movies. And I think that somehow it's maybe it's the breadth of the TV show, it, breadth of a show and also what TV has been open to these days in terms of narratives and that you really get to grow with these characters and they endear themselves to you and you really you see them as people you know because you kind of see them in all their complexity um, and I'm not sure how the statistics compare, but I wonder if actors of color have been doing better in television recognitions and awards than in movies, at least on a, like a more on the uh, in the yeah. field of just like media coverage and sort of cultural importance. It feels like people right. pay more attention and there have been more interesting roles yeah. on television than on film. Although certainly like, yes. And I think you can, I wouldn't say single-handedly attribute that to Shonda Rhimes, but certainly she is deserving of like a huge, you know, bulk of the credit for that. Um, I mean, before Kerry Washington was nominated for Scandal, like it had been like 40 some odd years that a black woman had been nominated for like actress in a leading role in a drama for an Emmy. Um, It was... uh, Oh, God. She played Diane Carroll. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, it was Diane Carroll, and then nobody, and then Carrie Washington. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but you see it, like, Regina Regina gets Emmy's love and respect. And actually, I do want, I will hit on Watchmen for, like, to make a brief point. Again, I'm going to come back to something that Alyssa Rosenberg told me. She's a cultural critic at the Washington Post who did this, like, massive multi-part series on policing and pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um and she basically, the way she, when we were talking about Watchmen, she was like, it's both revolutionary and reactionary. Because um, she's saying, you know, one of the sort of easy ways um, to communicate that, like, you trust them. Like, I don't know that, I think basically what she said, she was like, I don't know that there's any way, there's anything more American than saying, like, we trust you to be violent with criminals. But, like... Even within that, the show and what's happening to Regina is also arguing that, like, there's there's still no escaping sort of, like, systemic racism um, to the point that it has poisoned the entire Tulsa Police Department, (laughs) or most of it. And there hasn't been a lot of discussion about that, I think, because it's not an easy thing to discuss. Um, and because like it's very sort of singular and what it's doing there, um, yeah, there like there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance there that's like that's really interesting in terms of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just gonna jump in here because I want to make sure the audience uh, uh, has a chance. If you have any questions you want to pose to our our panel, thank you very much. Um, one thing you mentioned was authenticity and about the opportunities for roles. And what I thought of was some of these movies in the past, uh, like Jennifer Jones playing uh, Love is a Many Splendor Thing or Louise Rader playing The Good Earth about these, these they're playing these characters that are not even the race. And someone told me at a party, I'm sure this is true, they want Julia Roberts to play Harriet uh, Tubman. <laughs> this is someone swore yeah. to that, that I, I couldn't believe it. That's what someone told me at a party last year. Was, yeah, back in the 90s, like there was a film executive, um, I think, like there was, 
Like this was in the trades. Like it was <laughs> seriously. Like there was a story about it um, because I think it's like it is true. Yeah, one of the writers of Harriet, because that film had been in development for like forever, um, and in the nineties they were like, oh, well, we can get Julia Roberts to do it. Like nobody, uh, and it's like, and they're like, oh, it'll be fine. Everybody loves her. You know, who cares? Yeah, I feel like there's a kind of uninterrogated history there. It, it needs a little more unpacking because, um, like, Anna Mae Wong, for example, she really yeah. wanted Louise Rayner's role in The Good Earth, and yet she, for some totally racist reason, did not get it. Um, another performance that comes to mind is uh, Linda Hunt in The Year of Living Dangerously. I think that is, like, one of the best performances to ever win an Oscar but she's not Asian, you know? And she's, nor is she, uh, I believe that character's a man, Billy Kwan. So it's just like, you know, if I don't think that that role would fly today, you know, or her playing that role specifically. Oh, no, no. Actually, yeah, I'm being, what You're am I talking Tilda about? Swinton. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it probably, they'd probably give her an Oscar today too, let's be honest. Question. Uh, here in, in the middle, yeah. Okay. Just a very open question. Any opinions about, um, Hispanic actors of color, I can get into so much, but let's just throw that out there. <laughs> you mean like, like, like distinctions between like black Latinas and? There's, that's a, like I said, there's a lot I could get into. Okay. Or so just, I just want to throw it out there and see where you guys run or, it. Or like, if not, I'll know, be here forever. <laughs> you know, like a Colombian playing like a Mexican there's a lot. person. I mean, there's, or... there's, wait, the first thing you said, there is white passing uh, Hispanic right, actors yeah. of color. There's you know, the gender yeah. sort of conformities and how, you know, women have to kind of sexy yeah. up. To, there's so many things that can go into, but. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other, I mean, okay, so I will, I feel like the most high profile example of this um, is probably when J-Lo when played Selena, um, right? Like there was, the, there was like a big sort of like in, intra-Latinx intra conversation about the fact that there this Puerto Rican woman was playing a Mexican. <laughs> Or Mexican American woman, um, although like she did it so well that that you know I think she was kind of forgiven for it. Um, I think what's more irritating is like I, a few years ago I want to maybe this was like 2014 2015ish. Like there was an announcement in the trades that Catherine Zeta Jones was going to be playing Griselda Blanco, which drove me insane because <laughs> um, Catherine Zeta Jones is is. Deep, Despite the fact, you know, despite what you may think, because of Legend of Zorro, is is not Latina in any way. <laughs> um, but I think also, like Jennifer Lopez might have signed up to also play her. Yeah, yeah, I think Griselda. that she wants to direct um, a Griselda biopic. Ooh. So I did want to talk actually briefly about yeah. Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, I'm please, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I just like. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of her singing, um, but as an actress, I've always had a lot of affection for her, you know, and I think that it's yeah. so easy for people to forget that before Onda Six came out in 1999, she was an actress and she wasn't just some actress. She was working with like Oliver Stone, Coppola, you know, Steven Soderbergh, uh, Bob Rafelson, um, and Gregory Nava twice, you know, before she started her singing career. And I was really, it just kind of circled back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation. I was totally shocked that she did not get a nomination, uh, but that seemed like such a gatekeepy gesture to me, you know, this yes. kind of like, mm. you can't sit with us, you're not one of us, you know? And I don't know what it That's is. That's exactly that, what that was. Yeah. And I think that goes back like a long ways. Again, if you want to look at sort of like the intersection of like gossip 
and how that influences I think like, I know what people's you're gonna say. perceptions of performances. Okay, so for one, like I think like her character and her performance in Hustlers is really interesting and just underappreciated by the Academy, you know, and I think there was like the anonymous comment that ended up on page six or um, in the New York Post. But, well, that that's not an Oscar movie. That's not an Oscar role. Whatever. Um, like, I'd, I'd like to see you hoist yourself up a pole. Um, so that shit's hard. But you know, that that's also related to like actors of color having to play like respectability yes. roles or sympathy roles. And they're just, I'm not the biggest fan of the movie, but I do yeah. think it's, you know, it's a really, it, it's fascinating roles mm-hmm. and it's a great showcase of their skills. Exactly. And they are women of color who are, morally very murky in the film exactly yes you know playing a profession that people already kind of denigrate and doing it with a lot of pizzazz and with a lot of confidence in Um, a way that we're like totally fine with if it's the big short if it's a bunch of white guys or even like like oceans 11 or you know it's it's like a very classic kind of heist film um and and I I do think that there's a hint of that in the way yeah. that it's been it's been but, dismissed. Yeah, I think the the other thing the thing that I was I would go back to because um, I don't think this was ever really like explored. Um, but if you go back and you look at the way, if you look at sort of like the public conversation about her relationship with Ben Affleck, it is I think laced with this anxiety about her brownness. Like, no one will come out and say it, remember? But, like, this was the era when, like, everyone was like, oh, my God, J-Lo got an ass. Um, and she was dating, like, this this man who was, right, he's, like, tall, you know, he's won an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. Like, he was, like, he is a primo, like, A-list white man Hollywood catch. And he is, dating Jennifer Lopez. I like that your th- two things where he is tall and won an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when you look at um, the ways that someone like um, Ben Affleck or this season, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, have really sort of been like welcomed and celebrated. Um, and they're just like, yes, you got rid of this annoying woman that like, we didn't like whether it's Jennifer Lopez or in Brad's case, Angelina Jolie there. Yeah. There is this idea of like women in Hollywood where who you were dating and how, or married to and how that is received also ends up playing into your also ends up like weirdly playing into like your awards chances. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely different for men because Eddie Redmayne like had the opposite effect, right? When he like very quickly got married and like had a kid and that was like such a, that was a great thing for him. But if you are a woman and you are perceived as like taking this man off the market that the people think you don't actually deserve, like you are vilified. Yeah, and one last point about gossip, I know we want to get to other questions, is that um, there's also this 1998 movie line interview with Jennifer Lopez that is kind of infamous now, but basically in it, you know, she regarded herself as a serious actress because she very much was a serious actress, um, but in that interview, she kind of um, just 
trashed a lot of um, her contemporaries, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Madonna, Winona Ryder, etc. And I think a lot of these assessments were like, you know, not totally unfair, you know, um, Team JLo. Um, but, uh, you know, um, I do think that I have to wonder how much kind of like lingering resentment over the bridges that she burned because of that kind of interview, you know, right. led to a snub, you know, like 20 years later, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Meanwhile, that also makes Gwyneth me... Is telling people to put, like, crazy shit in their vaginas, and yeah. that's <laughs> fine. You know, that also makes me think of, like, actors who are allowed to behave badly, and that's yes. viewed as cute and zany, and, oh, it's just a renegade. Like, one of my favorite actors right now is Lakeith Stanfield. And I don't think there's like any backlash against him, but I also feel so protective because yeah. he is so individualistic, even his roles. I mean, he's just a chameleon and he is able to play super distinctive characters in every film. I mean, most recently in Uncut Gems, where he was like one of the lower key characters in that film, but he's also like so mysterious and weirdly aggressive and so yeah. funny. And he was in Sorry different. to Bother You yeah. and in Atlanta. But he's also... I've seen, I mean, I've, I, yeah, in, well, I, he could have done more in that, <laughs> yeah. but it is evidence of his range. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, I feel like he, I've seen him be like super funny and also very outspoken and mm -hmm. like very open to making fun of people in the industry, not in any yeah. offensive way, at least like so far, but right. you know, even when I see his social media interactions and I'm always scared, like, you know, mm. that that's going to like tick off the, those in power yeah. or something because we we know that you know actors of color are generally not allowed to be those kinds of outsider figures yeah that was that was actually like i think one of the things that got sort of that was left out of the story and i tweeted about this a little bit about the the cop essay was like basically what we were coming back to is like who is allowed to be weird um and who you know and particularly when it comes to like actors of color can there be like more than one weird one at a time, right? right. Like if Lakeith is up, if Lakeith is is sort of in that role right now, does that mean that like that's it and like nobody else can nobody else can be the weird black guy except for him, <laughs> which is like just a shame. Yeah. Um, but I'm also I'm speaking of of his range. I'm very curious. I haven't seen the photograph yet. Oh yeah, um, I'm like I'm like I think the one thing that he's the hump that he might have to overcome is is whether we can see him as a romantic lead mm. like if that's if that's a comfortable fit for him i don't know i can see him yeah as romantic <laughs> I, I like because did you see jessica james i did did you like him in that i don't remember him in that well, there that's you go. crazy <laughs> uh -oh. yeah now that you, i actually kind of forgot about that movie but he was yeah. in that and he was a romantic lead yeah. huh I don't, yeah i don't know i'm curious um, well, to be continued. Um, so we are sort of running at the end of our, our time, but I want to get in a couple more questions. I think uh, you had a, a um, yeah. I was going to ask what what would have to change to remedy this because it seems as if there's Hollywood the systems is, has a short term memory, mm -hmm. and uh, when you have outspoken comments as much as we have our our POTUS saying extreme things, we also have people in the industry saying extreme things. People that respect it, so. Uh, like the case of um, of the uh, Exodus film, uh, Ridley Scott blatantly said, "Oh, well," and he used some like obvious name like Mustafa or something. Are we gonna have Mustafa so and so play uh, these characters? And yet, I thought, you know, the system says that if someone's a box office success, 
that that sort of puts aside that and we can put anyone in a right. role, you know, and or if you have a successful producing, directing team, they also can knock things out. So in other words, from 50, almost 50 years in the business, Ridley Scott could pick anyone he wants to play uh, roles that we know are from history, not white European characters, and they would become those characters. So what would have to change to make things, and, and or uh, given the fact that um, I think um, uh, Tilda Swinton, as wonderful as I love she is, yeah. I think uh, Michelle Yeoh could very well have been in Doctor Strange and have been equally successful because it's a superhero movie and mm-hmm. it's a franchise. So what would have to change to remedy these things, or will it be another case that next year they'll forget everything again? Oh. Yeah. I like. I think the optimistic answer to this, and I think it's sort of, I think it's naively optimistic, is that, like, and what people love to say is, oh, the only color that matters in Hollywood is green, and that is not true. Um, I think you, you know, I would say you can see that, like, this year with us, which was, like, one of the few, like, original screenplay. Like, it was, mm-hmm. like, the, what was, like, the highest grossing original screenplay. Yeah, like, top 10, the only one, film maybe. Of this year. Um, and yet, we just don't talk about, like, Jordan Peele is not talked about in those terms. For a while, um, you know, once the Academy in particular was, like, really um, loud about sort of stepping up their diversity efforts and they were inviting all of these new people into the Academy and they kept doing that. On the one hand, like, it's, you want to be optimistic about that. On the other hand, like, even when they invite several hundred people, like, in an Academy class, um that has like racial and gender parity um, because the academy is so incredibly white and male. Um, like the percentage difference is maybe like 1% a year, 2% a year, like that they're growing like toward parity. <laughs> like it, it will take like decades at the rate that they're going. <laughs> um, unless like some, I mean, okay, so some old folks will die every year. But <laughs> it, sorry. But, but still, like in, you know, at the rate that they are going, it's still, and this is them doing like a good job and being proactive about it. It's still like glacial, you know, it's just like anything else where you have these sort of like deeply ingrained attitudes. Um, You know, if you looked at like the Hollywood reporter cover that had like a photograph of like the six studio heads, like they're, they're all white, I think. Maybe there's one black person, like the major studio heads. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, you, you really sort of have to have like a massive revolution that takes place like from the very top all the way to the bottom, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about like the most visible people. We're talking about actors and to a certain point directors below the line is terrible, you know, to the point that you have, I mean, there are actors now who basically like, have enough pull that like if Denzel Washington is working on a film, you know, the crew is actually going to be reflective of America um, because that's one of the things that he stipulates. But you know, if you leave this up to just individuals, like nothing, nothing actually changes. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like I think certainly the guilds could do more in terms of the sort of stipulations and guidelines that they issue. Um for for projects that their members are working on um but yeah it really it has to come both from the top down and the bottom up it has to like it has to be holistic 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of awards bodies, I mean, one thing is like, I, th- I do think sustained public pressure for these, you know, institutions that are kind of arthritic at this point, like to do better, you know, like, I, I want the Academy to feel kind of embarrassed in the same way that the BAFTAs, like, I hope they were embarrassed too, for only nominating, uh, you know, white actors this year, I don't believe there's a single uh, actor of color nominated this year. That's one thing. But parallel to that, I also want to kind of, it's going to sound very like, anarchist of me but like uh just like imagine like you know a system where like awards or at least this like the oscars do not matter so much culturally and do not determine you know who gets capital and who gets access you know and who gets the opportunities you know i really want to imagine that kind of world you know in which we don't put that much stock in these you know awards that were never like the barometer of quality to begin with you know we just need to acknowledge that truth and just like create our own futures in some way that sounds totally idealistic but it's something to work towards well, yeah and create alternative circles and supporting local mm-hmm. like repertory theaters and sort of non-corporate yeah. means of accessing and making and and seeing movies it probably maybe is like feels like a drop in the bucket but i just like i said at the beginning of this i i just can't put stock in the Oscars you know I mean they just feel so meaningless to me which I know is not entirely correct they have such a they do have such a big impact on who gets to make movies who gets roles but it it's just like a really honestly cynical and kind of depressing to keep like hoping for them to change and they don't have to, credibility no and and yeah. and the, as you said the pace is so glacial and at the end of the day it's a mass voting block of all the powerful people in Hollywood you know so for me, it's like find other ways, read independent criticism, you know, watch things at your local film society. This is not an advertisement. <laughs> I mean, they <laughs> just like, do. Look, Very they nicely done, they clearly, Dan. Like, they don't appreciate Claire Denis. They don't appreciate Terrence Malick. Mm-hmm. They don't appreciate Anya right. Sparta either. Yeah. So, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we probably should finish now, but since we started a little late, I want to make sure we got one more question. I think there was a question in the back. Um, yeah. So a couple of days ago in, I think, Hollywood Reporter, they had an anonymous Oscar voter that chimed in and said that... Uh, chimed in and said that uh, Parasite should not have been nominated for Best Picture because it has the best foreign... It's nominated on the foreign language feature, which is... I want to get y'all your thoughts individually on it. I guess we'll start with his because he's obviously more shook up than anything else. And you're the most optimistic one out of the, the group. So, yeah, so far, I mean, you're the one who said, uh, hey, you know, um, maybe. So uh, oh, that's interesting. Yikes. In mix, so. I, I was not aware that I was coming across that way. Um, <laughs> well, you know. question that you brought up, and when you were answering him, you had the optimism. Everybody's you're like, the nah, Pollyanna the, here. You brought yeah. that up. Okay, well, that is runs con to my public persona um but um you know i think that obviously that whole opinion is like total bullshit you know um and it just kind of reinforces uh bong joon ho's assertion that the oscars are fundamentally local you know um but at the same time i will say that i have had trouble with the ways in which the oscars like at least when it comes to performances like which foreign films and foreign performances it kind of a picks as kind of um career tributes you know it's weird right like Catherine Deneuve gets like and she's obviously a white actress but like she gets nominated for like Indochine which is like who would who's gonna remember that when they write her obituary you know it's not one of her best performances you know why is it that you know certain like you know uh, it it just feels kind of weird and almost tokenistic sometimes to see which um 
performances um, from foreign actors kind of, you know, get picked to like, you know, join the club or like, you know, oh, this is your year. Oh, you know, Isabel Huppert, you can have this if you want, you know, like it, it just, it, I don't really like that. I don't know what the solution is. Um, that said, I think that like Parasite even being nominated for Best Picture is like the closest um, since probably Moonlight, honestly, um, where like, you know, a Best Picture nominee and hopefully eventually winner, you know, has reflected actual quality, you know, and so. Is it best Roma picture? Yeah. I have complicated feelings about Roma. Um, <laughs> not a huge fan. Love Yalitza. I think she was the best part of it. That's another conversation. Um, but yes, best since Moonlight, in my opinion. I mean, I honestly think the Oscars should just like set really strict and narrow parameters for what they are. And they should just be like, movies made in America or something, you know, because. I almost think that's better than them trying to be more international because then every gesture of internationalism is so paternalistic and cherry picks certain kinds of narratives. You can't, you cannot decide the best movies made in the world. That is an impossible task. What, maybe what you can do, best movies made this year in the United States of America. And then we'll all be like, these are the American awards and these were the awards that the people in America who work in Hollywood thought were the best movies and then we'd all be happy. No, you, Parasite does not need an Oscar to be a good movie. Parasite is a great movie. Oh, right. it's interesting. Right. I, yeah, I mean, I'm talking in like big blanket terms. I understand that. I like what you're saying. Yeah. But then that British well, that's what I'm saying. That it doesn't have to be about language. Just say it's ma- movies made in the U.S. The Brits have the BAFTAs. Everyone has their own awards. Or yeah, just to understand that the Oscars are fundamentally American in the same yeah. way that like. But we, I mean, this is sort of just we have this kind of like awards imperialism, like as Americans, <laughs> generally, right? Because like, oh, okay, so the Chiefs win the Super Bowl and all of a sudden they are the world champions. Um, right? well, I mean, there's <laughs> always these, I mean, there's always these articles that come out during the Oscar season and it's like, at, and these many Indian movies have never, or like, you know, have, only these many have been shortlisted. These many have never won. And to me, it's like, Indian movies don't need the Oscars. Indian movies are doing fine. They don't need the Oscars. <laughs> they don't need America's approval. At the same but, time, you know, there, there is the reason to be like resentful because American movies dominate in all countries and all markets. And that's yeah. the way the world economy and the film industry, global film industry works. So there is a sense of, well, we all grow up watching your movies and your movies come to all our multiplexes and you don't know anything about, you mm. know, hardly pay attention to movies pay, uh, that are made in these other parts of the world. Mm. But I do think that the only way to kind of, you know, really even consume the Oscars is to be like deeply, deeply cynical about them and yeah. to treat them as trivial. I mean, yeah. trivial and local. That's the only way to like... <laughs> the very nice American award. <laughs> well, that, this is where I'll segue into a plug for Film Comet, which embraces movies from all around the world uh, and does not have awards, um, although we do have a poll, but anyway. Um, but uh, thank you to our wonderful panelists and a wonderful audience for a terrific talk. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Brilliant, gorgeously immersive, masterful in its subtlety. These are just a few of the ways critics are describing Angela Shonalek's I Was at Home But. The film starts Friday, February 14th, exclusively at Film at Lincoln Center, with Shonalek in person at select screenings.